This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. Mr. Chair, you're not the arbiter of what I say, and it is parliamentary. I still have a minute, and I would like the witness to answer. No, I have two. I've spoken for two minutes. You're counting interruptions from the conservatives uh, against my time. I'd like Mr. Warnell, who sat here for the duration of this meeting, to answer my question about the safety and security of critical infrastructure in nuclear communities. Oh my gosh, I'm so not interested in your opinion of my comments to get to a question about critical infrastructure in nuclear communities. I was actually speaking to everybody, Ms. O'Connell. If you think that it's directed towards you, perhaps there's something going on there. But I was talking to our whole committee. Perhaps to keep you on a have an Would issue you stop particular interrupting with me, Ms. O'Connell. Yeah. Please. You've interrupted my Order. time. You have interrupted Order. my time, Chair, time and time again. It's funny, you don't interrupt the male conservatives, but the one woman asking questions okay, on this, this meeting side, has gotten just you interrupt. I declare this meeting adjourned. That was just one of a number of embarrassing exchanges last week at the Standing Committee on Public Safety and National Security as its study of Bill C-26 plods along. Bill C-27, the Privacy and AI Bill, captures the lion's share of attention when it comes to privacy legislation in Canada, but it's Bill C-26, alternately described as a cybersecurity, critical infrastructure, or telecom bill that has serious implications for privacy, freedom of expression, and affordable network access. That said, the opening clip suggests that the committee studying the bill doesn't seem to take it particularly seriously, with partisan squabbles regularly cutting into the time devoted to witness testimony. Kate Robertson is a lawyer and senior research associate at the Citizen Lab in the Monk School at the University of Toronto. She's a former criminal counsel and co-author of one of the most extensive Bill C-26 committee submissions. She appeared last week in committee, but given limited time, she now joins me on the podcast to talk about the bill, the concerns it raises, and some potential fixes. Kate, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, no, no, thank you for taking the, the time out to join. You've had an interesting week as, uh, as we talk. Earlier this week, you appeared before House of Commons Committee on Bill C-26. It's it's a bill that's largely flown below the radar screen, I think it's fair to say, for most Canadians, uh, even for many who are in the privacy community. I recall that I had uh, at least one episode on the bill a little while back with Brenda McPhail when she was at the CCLA, but it doesn't feel like a lot has happened, although now it's starting to move a bit with a change in the minister and now the bill before committee. Your session, I, I think, frankly, thought that MPs from both sides ought to have been pretty embarrassed and uh, they didn't provide really much time to the actual bill at all. And so hopefully this podcast episode can remedy that a little bit by giving you a bit more time to talk about uh, the report that you've written uh, along with some of your colleagues on this bill and some of the kinds of issues that you might have hoped to raise before committee. Why don't we get started, though, a bit with some of the basics for those that are new to C-26, and I think there still are many that are. So what is Bill C-26? What's, what is it designed to do? And it, it has attracted some interest and concern from civil society. And so if we can, at, at a high level, just map out what some of those are, and then we'll dive into some of the more specifics. 
Yeah, no, I'm very happy to um, be on the podcast to discuss the bill. And I certainly would commend to your audience if they hadn't had the occasion to um, listen to uh, Brenda and others speak about the bill with you and others in the past. It's certainly worth doing so. She does such a great job of distilling some of the complex issues coming from Bill C-26. But just as a high level overview, essentially, if passed into law, it would uh, the bill would propose to reform the Telecommunications Act as well as impose new requirements on uh, federally regulated critical infrastructure providers. Um, ultimately, the preamble to the bill um, states that it's also, uh, ultimately um, written to promote the security of the Canadian telecommunications system, as well as the security and resilience of critical cyber systems in the federal sector. Um, the bill bestows a, a host of really broad new order making and regulation making powers for the ministry of uh, minister of industry, um, including the power to compel to telecommunication providers to essentially do or refrain from doing anything in service of uh, securing uh, Canadian networks from threats of interference, manipulation, disruption. Um, and uh, similar powers with respect to uh, cyber, uh, sorry, critical infrastructure. Uh, there's information sharing powers within government in aid of those objectives, as well as a new regulatory regime that would uh, create new criminal offenses and administrative monetary penalties for non-compliance with the orders under the Act. And you're quite right, the bill has uh, generally been welcomed as an important step towards protecting the security of uh, Canadian networks and is, I think, um, treated as something that's perhaps long overdue. Um, but it has also been the recipient of criticism on the ground that if passed unamended, it could do more harm than good to some of its very um, objectives. Um, you know, there has been a, a joint submission from civil society organizations that was presented to committee last year some of those concerns focused on how the bill opens the door to new surveillance objectives or sorry, obligations. Um, it permits um, a secret termination of essential services to individuals or entities, um, the absence of guardrails to constrain abuse, um, privacy risks, and really unknowable orders that would potentially trump regulation, among other issues. So really a host of civil liberties concerns that have been coming forward, I think, quite um, I would, you know, there's been a, a, quite a lot of consensus coming from uh, a number of directions about the need about the need for amending the legislation in a number of ways. Okay, uh, so there's a lot to unpack there. Thanks mm -hmm. for that. At, at a high level, it uh, identifies the fact that there's a bill that uh, I think many think is long overdue, clearly addressing uh, an important issue in terms of cybersecurity and critical infrastructure, but uh, doing so unsurprisingly raises some real questions and concerns amongst many in terms of whether or not the balance is, is struck appropriately. You know, I, I want to get to some of the, the kinds of the, some of the specifics, but one of the things that I thought was really interesting about the submission that, that you provided in a, in a brief to the committee, which drew on the work of Dr. Christopher Parsons, who appeared also on this podcast some time ago, um, focused quite a lot on the charter and whether and the compliance of of this bill with the charter. And so I think a, that's an interesting approach to take. I thought maybe we could spend a bit of time talking about that. The government released, as they do now, for all bills, a charter statement. They did that uh, back in 2022, just to highlight just how long some of this has been ongoing. It's still just a committee. Um, can you talk a little bit about what the, the charter statement covered? And then perhaps we can dive into some of the kinds of concerns that 
you've identified. Sure. Um, and, and that's helpful context, I think, um, for the audience. Uh, Dr. Parsons, my former colleague at the Citizen Lab, had has indeed written um, a really foundational report that's helped um, frame much of the democratic debate around the issues in Bill C-26. And um, one of the helpful uh, recommendations that he had articulated at that time, which is in the fall of 2022, that um, the government really should produce a charter statement in order to help assist the public in understanding um, the many implications that the bill could have or will have for charter protected rights and freedoms in Canada. Um, and so a few months after his report, we welcomed the release of that uh, charter statement. It, um, it's not intended to be an official constitutional opinion or an exhaustive statement of all ch the charter issues, um, but it does discuss a number of areas that C-26 does engage charter rights. Um, for example, it talks about free expression rights under Section 2B, insofar as there are non-disclosure orders under the legislation that would restrict the speech of entities who are essentially gagged by those non-disclosure orders issued against them by the minister. Um, it also talks about the restrictions on open court principles that would um, be occasioned as the bill permits the government to essentially rely on secret evidence in judicial review proceedings that may occur under the legislation if entities challenge orders or regulations that the minister issues. Um, there's a slew of fairness obligations that come along with the creation of criminal offenses and criminal sentences or significant fines that the statement talks about. And lastly, it also discusses the uh, significant privacy interests that the bill would engage. Um, it acknowledges that the mandatory information collection and sharing powers do have the potential to interfere with privacy interests under Section 8 of the Charter. Um, and, but ultimately, the statement defends uh, the powers on a few grounds, uh, one of which is um, its assertion that the bill would, uh, because it's regulating um, what it describes as highly sophisticated institutional entities who operate in regulated spheres, um, they characterize the privacy interests at issue as generally diminished by nature of their um, in institutional stature. Um, and so really, uh, when it boils down to it, I, there, are, there are other um, reasons offered, but uh, a theme in the charter statement that you hear is that the bill is affecting companies and not people. Okay, interesting. Um, yeah, no, I, I certainly personally encountered the charter statement and both it and its and its limits and, and potential value around other bills, certainly Bill C-11 had quite a lot of focus on the charter statement a little bit less so on C-18, but uh, they play a role, but they sometimes, I think, leave people hoping for a bit more. Uh, you've argued that there is more that uh, ought to be considered in this context, and uh, your report and your, your comments to committee this week highlighted three. Why don't we start first with equality rights? And there's a, a link there with concerns about affordable access to telecom networks, which has obviously been a, a major concern for many years. What's the concern here, or what's the link here that you see to Bill C-26? Certainly, and um, there are broad issues around uh, accessibility and affordability of telecommunication services in, in Canada, some of which overlap with Section 15 issues. Um, this, this section of our charter analysis really focuses on 
um, the impl implementation stage of what Bill C-26 um, would foster in terms of how orders and regulations are framed and what the effect of those orders may be over time, um, rather than a criticism of the specific text of the bill as it's formal, currently drafted. Uh, but really, it's important, I think, for the public to understand these uh, equity issues and how Bill C-26 may be implemented over time, because it speaks to really ultimately the public interest in what uh, powers are issued under the bill and how accountable and transparent those powers uh, will be. Um, so we have, um, you know, ex as you very much well know, um, continuing issues with the digital divide in Canada with regional disparities, accessibility issues among Indigenous communities, and cost issues that um, are particularly close to home for low-income communities who um, are overrepresented in the groups that are protected under Section 15 of the Charter. Um, the CRTC has recently found that we've really been seeing successive years of declining competition, um, and particularly in the telecommunications sector, and particularly so in Quebec and Ontario. Um, and, you know, recent commitments have been made by at least one vendor to lower those costs for um, homes and, and individuals in Canada, um, which has, uh, you know, a potential importance for people in Quebec and elsewhere as its subscriber base expands. So it's really fair, I think, to say that it's a delicate ecosystem and orders could inadvertently cause adverse or disproportionate effects for people in Canada or groups um, who are represented under Section 15 in particular. Um, you could see that, uh, that potential in the capacity for orders to tether organizations to cybersecurity measures. They're not accessible for persons living with disabilities um, or uh, you know, a failure of government and regulators to address persistent vulnerabilities in our networks that um, are particularly problematic for groups protected under Section 15. Okay, interesting. So uh, some concern there, especially around the implementation and the risks that that might entail. You mentioned that expression comes up in the charter statement, but you've raised sort of additional concerns or identified some specific concerns around the expression implications of the bill. Can you can you talk a bit about that? I know you focused a bit on the secrecy and confidentiality provisions that exist in the bill. Yes, exactly. And I, I think that the charter statement does engage with some of the to be issues, but not the full scope of those issues, that's fair to say. Um, and um, one of the areas that um, we've identified that aren't addressed in, um, by the statement is that um, Section 2B protects both open courts and open government. It's a corollary of the freedom of expression under the Charter. Um, ultimately, excessive uh, secrecy and confidentiality can um, pose unreasonable restraints on meaningful public debate on a matter of public interest. And um, the equality discussion um, uh, underscores ultimately um, really the widespread public interest in how um, these uh, orders and regulations as are contemplated under the bill may be issued over time and implemented over time. Um, and so in that regard, I, I would say that 
the bill has the uh, potential to affect not only the free expression of the commercial entities that are directly regulated by the legislation, but also the public's right to information that informs that public debate, as well as the media's uh, right to cover and discuss um, the government's policy as it's played out through those orders and regulations issued under the bill. And we see limitations in how the government is able to issue those orders um, without any publicity or, and or um, gag orders that could prevent the um, entities themselves from discussing the order's existence or circumstances surrounding them. Um, and so that that's... Um, one of the issues around free expression, you know, ultimately, I think it's fair to say that cybersecurity and telecom policy is not exactly dinner table conversation for many people in Canada. But as you uh, yourself, Professor, know very well that there is a community within Canada that understands these issues very well outside of government. I can well imagine a, a podcast episode under this series that could cover an order issued by the minister under this type of legislation. But of course, if it's issued in secret, then that could never happen. Um, and so we've uh, really pointed to the need to uh, craft a cybersecurity that integrates the expertise of independent regulators, experts like yourself in the formation of that um, policy and dialogue over time. Yeah, no, and I, I want, thanks for that. And I want, I want to come back to the transparency issue uh, in just a moment. But before I do, hopefully, even if some of the expression issues aren't dinner time conversation for some people, the privacy issues often are. And I think there is a recognition that there are there are real privacy implications with some of the choices that get made. You've expressed some concerns on the privacy side as well, particularly with respect to new information collection, some of the sharing powers and the like. Um, what can you talk a bit about what the bill provides and what you think some of the implications are for privacy? Of course, people have been very focused on C-27, on the privacy and AI bill when it comes to some of the privacy issues. And in some ways, C-26 has been a bit more under the radar screen when it comes to some of the privacy implications. Right. So um, the charter statement, as I mentioned, does discuss the Section 8 implications of Bill C-26. Um, my considered view is that it doesn't fully wrestle the scope of the privacy issue to the ground in terms of looking what Bill C-26 is really capable of empowering the minister to collect by way of information and share broadly within government and foreign um, agencies. Um, you know, there's a number of issues here, but I think that one of the first blush issues that is important to understand is I think what many can cause many people to kind of stop in their tracks and scratch their heads about including potentially judges who could be on the receiving end of a constitutional challenge to a um, legislation of this kind which is that the minister is ultimately empowered to ask um, essentially any person for any information that he believes is relevant to the order making power um, and this is an exceptionally broad scope of uh, potential information that could be compelled um, from uh, persons in Canada. Um, you know, the lawyers in the room will understand that relevance is one of the lowest possible legal standards of connection between the type of information at issue and an order making power. Um, and so while the charter statement has asserted that the Section 8 problem here essentially attenuated by the fact that the bill is directed towards commercial entities. 
and the information that's gathered may well be technical in nature. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean at all that C26 will capture information that has a diminished expectation of privacy. Uh, the bill itself doesn't actually draw a distinction that's made in the charter statement between technical information and personal information that's close to what the kind of lawyers call the bi biographical core of information that the constitution is really rooted in protecting, although not exclusively. Um, telecommunication providers are literally conveyors of the most private communications that our legal system recognizes. Privacy interests in pri private uh, communications are possibly as high as any type of information that is known to our government search and seizure powers. Um, the bill does not prevent the minister from, by its terms, from essentially requiring the production of personal information or even information that there's a reasonable expectation of privacy. Um, I think it's also important that the statement doesn't uh, speak to the review and accountability requirements that Section 8 typically looks for to ensure that information collection and sharing powers are sufficiently and reasonably reviewable. Um, and that's a big problem because the bill um, would potentially set up a system of secret laws and gag orders that would prevent individuals whose personal information is potentially caught up um, in this information uh, collection and sharing power from even knowing that their information has been affected, let alone being able to challenge in a review mechanism or complaint mechanism such as court or the privacy commissioner. So um, I think that's also a really interesting discussion that unfolded from um, the, the hearing so far about confidential information and the government's acknowledged that companies really won't want to share their confidential information, but the bill's really focused on a trust us approach to protecting it. Um, but I don't think it's, uh, you know, it's come up from some of the witnesses that this bill could essentially trigger um, this creation of a honeypot or trove of confidential, vulnerable information for organizations. And so we could well see under this bill um, litigation that cr looks at and examines whether companies have a particularly high privacy interest in respect of information concerning their cybersecurity vulnerabilities. Okay, it's, it's a bit of a fire hose in terms of just the, the sheer amount of uh, of considerations and issues that come up. But you know, anyone's listening and they start hearing about secret orders uh, and the like. That's that I think is surely going to set off alarm bells. If you're talking about low thresholds, secrecy of orders, and sort of that broad powers to compel, you know, what what safeguards? are in place right now when it comes to orders what ability to limit some of the powers to to or to make some of the orders to various organizations are there and uh, if they're if they're insufficient what are some of the kinds of changes that you think uh, are in order well uh, you know i think that and this had come up at committee as well is what what are the ways to um amend or tweak is there you know a preferred way of addressing um, the Section 8 problem. And I think that over, the overarching um, goal that Section 8 encourages or obliges the government to aim for is to have a system of checks and balances that make some sense and is reasonable to enable that review and accountability. Um, we've identified issues such as the absence of notice obligations to individuals and companies around collection and sharing, um, data retention limits, um, as well as um, 
the, the very conceptual limits of what type of information should can and should be collected and how it should be used should be more tightly controlled. Um, there needs to be explicit protection, for example, for personal information, as right now the bill only covers protections explicitly for confidential information, which may well not overlap with personal information that these regulated entities are custodians of. Um, and, and ultimately just a, a, an overarching obligation to make orders, including collection powers, proportionate and reasonable and necessary as a defining uh, limit on the government's power. Okay. So there are some steps that could be taken to tweak, as you suggest, the bill to, to try to, to address some of the concerns. You mentioned transparency and accountability uh, a bit earlier as part of your, as part of your comments. Uh, how do you see the bill falling short? I mean, in some ways, it's kind of obvious if you're talking about secret orders, but uh, where where are some of the shortcomings when it comes to transparency and accountability? And again, what thoughts do you have on on what could be how it could be might be fixed? Well, yeah, there is a, a lot of overlap in terms of the charter analysis that we offered to um, committee to consider, as well as the goals of transparency and accountability generally. Um, so many of those recommendations um, can and, and do overlap. Um, one of the areas that we haven't um, touched on in, in depth so far in our conversation is the, the use of constraints around um, what mandate government agencies have to receive and use information that may be shared under the legislation. Um, it's clear from the government statement and various public statements that uh, the minister's ability to share information with um, the CSC, the, the uh, Canada's uh, Signals Intelligence Agency, uh, is an important aspect from the government's perspective for um, the powers that are contemplated under Bill C-26. Um, but ultimately, this has created a... a, a, a problem, an order of magnitude greater than some of the other transparency and accountability issues that we're um, discussing under the legislation. Ultimately, we've recommended that given the legislation is directed towards cybersecurity objectives, that the use of the information collected and shared under the Act should be restrained to that uh, mandate, including that aspect of the CSE's mandate. Um, we've seen for the last few years some systemic problems that, for example, the National Security Intelligence Review Agency has had in obtaining from the CSE the information necessary for the government, for the agency to review the lawfulness of the CSE's activities, in particular in relation to the use of information about Canadians. And um, it's very clear from those reports that the CSE does consider itself um, entitled to use information received for a cybersecurity purpose across all of its mandates, which I agree with Sierra um, in, the, um, in their recommendation that this is a matter of public trust, um, and that we also we just ultimately need to be thinking very carefully about what new powers the CSE is given under this act, and um, it, it really compounds the transparency, accountability, and privacy interests that are implicated is it can cause individuals to ask themselves, is this really a bill about cybersecurity or is it a bill about spying? Yeah, no, I mean, the, the, there's echoes here of the discussion around uh, C-59 years ago, around lawful access, where some of those information sharing issues were, I think, a, a big part of the discussion. And, and 
considerable amount of fears that uh, once you open that door to widespread sharing, understanding that there may be instances where you'd want to ensure that there is that sharing in emergent type situations that uh, that it at a minimum created a certain amount of risk and that you needed to create some kind of guardrails and transparency in order to address some of those kinds of concerns. Uh, I think that that that's very right in that when C, the C-59 debate and legislation went through, Parliament put some very um, clear constraints around the extent to which our uh, country's spy agencies can direct its um, attention towards persons in Canada and Canadian information. Um, and it does appear to be the case that if the bill isn't amended, that this um, legislation could very much disrupt the equilibrium that was struck. Yeah, no, there, a certain irony that that was a, a big issue. I can recall a number of years ago with the, when the, uh, the Liberals were elected to to power and a lot of focus on that. And ironically, years later, the issue resurfacing in this context. there There is as well, I suppose, and this goes, I guess, back to your point around affordability to various networks uh, or affordable to, affordability to networks is the cost of all this. And you know, I think there's there's a fair amount of debate happening right now around some of the other pieces of government legislation where the cost of regulation suddenly, uh, people suddenly start waking up to it and you start getting companies, whether it's telecom companies in the context of, some of the CRTC rulings or um, some of the streaming services in the context of C11 who say, listen, if you're going to impose these sorts of costs, ultimately it goes on to the consumer who has to pay some of this in the in the context of access to networks, which is so essential, we're already grappling with some of the highest costs in the world, which has been an ongoing source of concern. What do you see some of the risks being associated with the the costs of this bill, essentially the cost of the regulatory requirements that ultimately uh, will be left at the door of, of the providers who are the, who are the most directly subject to this, but ultimately are going to look to find some mechanism to recoup some of those costs. Certainly. And, and, you know, I think this is an area um, like like many areas of complex public policy where there's a balance that needs to be struck. Um, one of uh, Citizen Lab's recent reports authored by Dr. Persons, as well as another researcher at the Citizen Lab, Gary Miller, has covered um, really uh, the widespread um, existence of continuing vulnerabilities in uh, telecommunication networks around the world that exposes individuals to um, geolocation surveillance markets. And um, that report is not the first of other research uh, coming from the Citizen Lab that has documented the need for um, platform neutral standards to be put in place to ensure that telecommunications networks are as protective as they can be and that all of the security features that are available, for example, in 5G networks are implemented across the board. And, and, and we've seen in uh, some parts of the world, it's unclear the extent of which because there is a transparency gaps, uh, you know, industry wide in this space about the extent to which those costs are avoided um, in terms of uh, the security implementation of networks. Um, but we do need to see standards. And um, and yet that can, as you indicated, create costs for potentially small enterprises in a sector that struggles with competition. And so uh, we have recommended, you know, if there are going to be orders that require foreseeably um, removal of equipment from telecommunications networks or substantial upgrades 
that um, some potential relief needs to at least be able to be argued for, particularly by organizations where compliance with the order would potentially impact the economic viability of the organization or costs if compliance is absolutely critical. Um, and also uh, extending measures to smaller entities that uh, could seek relief for costs uh, to alleviate the financial burden um, based on a, a, a history of um, security compliance and protection. Yeah, no, we've seen, you know, that with as many of the smaller players have been scooped up by by the larger players, there's been fewer and fewer voices that are, that have the ability to represent some of those kinds of perspectives, which raises questions as to or potential concerns as to whether or not some of those kinds of issues will even be brought before committee if some of the smaller players themselves who are already dealing with strained resources have the time to engage directly in, in some of these kinds of policies. It's, a, it's I think, a, an ongoing challenge. You know, why don't we close with this? This is one of those, it's an odd bill in some ways. You know, you, you get some pieces of legislation that just attract a lot of attention, become very divisive, potential wedge issues. And so a lot of spotlight on them in committee. And there are efforts to kind of align on something and, and kind of get them through. Then there are the bills that sort of that move quickly, but quietly through the process and not a lot of people are paying attention. This feels a bit like a bill that not a lot of people are paying attention, but is not moving very quickly. It doesn't seem like there's a ton of political capital behind it. Um, how do you see things playing out? I mean, the, the, at least the hearings have begun and there are sort of some of the briefs, including the one that um, Citizen Lab submitted. Uh, did you sense or do you sense a, an urgency to try to get this through? Or do you fear or feel that uh, this is one of those bills that may continue to, to languish a little bit, especially given some of the shenanigans that we've seen take place at committee? Well, you know, as a researcher in this space, I, I think I'm not the right person to ask about um, the intention or uh, dynamics of which parties are uh, committed to which portions of this legislation. Um, but what I would say is that it is clear that, um, at least from the comments that have been coming through from committee, that this is a an issue that is capable of being treated as a non-partisan non goal, the, the goal of protecting um, security of Canada's networks. And I think it's also interesting from my um, experience as a um, practitioner of a, a law in, in a host of civil, civil liberties issues um, prior to the issues emerging in Bill C-26 that, um, you know, there, there are many civil liberties issues which can confront lawmakers that pose really competing public interests and um, in ways that can almost be seen as irresolvable and that tough decisions ultimately have to be made. Here, the recommendations that have been articulated in the joint submission by civil society organizations and that we've put forward um, really are in keeping with the government's objectives to play a more assertive role in the regulation of cybersecurity. Um, I think that it, you know, the sense that I'm getting is that this is a race against the clock insofar as there's a lot of consensus around the need for amendments and that the content of those amendments is um, workable with what the, the uh, government intends to put forward in Bill C-26. Um, but the parliamentary calendar 
uh, may prove to be the biggest obstacle in terms of seeing those non-controversial amendments uh, be put through, given there are quite a quite a number of them to prioritize. Okay. Well, yeah, it's certainly encouraging to hear that uh, both the there's the ability to deal with this in a bit more of a nonpartisan way because so many of the bills seem to be uh, derailed or at least moved in in a partisan fashion, which makes it very difficult to get through with some of the the kinds of amendments that are are far more sensible. So uh, that's encouraging. Whether or not the the clock runs out, I guess uh, remains to be seen, and is beyond for both of us figuring out what's going to happen on the political end. But thank you for taking the time to to highlight what's in this bill, where some of the concerns lie, and why I think people ought to be paying attention. Thanks so much for having me. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time.